morning, Music Man Mike here, welcoming you to this special edition of Rockopedia. We're dedicating four episodes this month to grunge music. Grunge, we're talking about Seattle, we're talking about Portland, that music, those flannel shirts, all that good stuff. The beginning, the middle, and not the end because it still exists, but we're going to talk about where we are to this day. And we're going to have special guest, co-host Joe Santiago joining us on all four episodes. So please join us every Tuesday at 10 a.m. in December for Grungepedia. All right, you are listening to BCB Live. Thank you guys for tuning in. It is 10 a.m. on Tuesday, and as we continue the kind of Christmas time special that we've been doing, it we are going to go into Grungepedia this week, and we are joined with none other than Paul Fig here on the phone. How are you doing today, Paul? I'm doing great. Well, thank you for joining us, and uh, I know we got a lot to talk about today just with your involvement in kind of the music scene up there with Alice in Chains, Evanescence, Deftones, Slipknot, I mean, so many bands that you have worked with, and not to mention your time at Sound City as well, and then your relationship with Joe, so I guess we can go ahead and get into it. Joe, you want to lead us off? Yeah, um, so... I met Paul, I guess it was like 91, I'm thinking. Uh, a friend of mine called me, and this was when I lived in Phoenix, and said that she had a friend, Paul, that needed a uh, place to stay. He needed to get out of L.A. for a while. You know, things get weird sometimes. So he just wanted to get away, and I was like, yeah, you know, my roommate, Chris, just went to jail for a DUI, so I have space. And so Paul came to town, and we started hanging out, and we became really good friends. Like, we went everywhere together. we go to shows and listen to music. And at that time... Um, Sat by Alice in Chains had come out. It had just come out because I remember the house that I lived in. I had just moved there when Paul came to town. And I think that was like the first album I bought. So it was kind of like my moving in music. And uh, we listened to that religiously. And, you know, it turns out years later, Paul is engineering music for Alice in Chains. I think he worked on the, what, the last three albums? Yeah, I did. Yeah. Oh, and, and thank yeah. you guys for having me on the show. This is like super fun, by the way. Oh, yeah, of course. Thanks for joining yeah. us. This yeah. is, it's really cool to get somebody who's been actively involved like that here on the show. So thank you for taking the time out. I know it's a little bit earlier. I'm not sure where you're located right now. Are you still up in? Yeah, I'm in Los Angeles. So it's just turned eight o'clock. Oh, man. Yeah. Oh, man. I'm sorry. <laughs> <We> <laughs> you had, had to be up early for this. We have three different time zones going on right now. <laughs> yeah, we do. We're, we're across the world. Coast, he's West Coast and you're what? The Midwest? <laughs> I don't know what they call Texas. Yeah, the South. Yeah. The South. Yeah. The South, yeah. Yeah, we've got a few different time zones going on here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a little impressive. We're all in different parts of our day. But yeah, the, so thanks for being up at 8 a.m. I know it's not easy. I cannot yeah. even imagine. I mean, I'm, I'm usually up at 5 for this thing, but even 8 a.m. is, is tough sometimes. Like, I can't. If I didn't have to go to work at 5 a.m., I definitely would not be up before 8. So thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, no problems. Yeah, and it's great to catch so, up with Joe. It's a, yeah, it's <laughs> yeah, always fun to catch up with people. Um, so one of the things I wanted to talk about was your introduction to Alice in Chains and how you got involved with it. Well, uh, I was introduced to the band, well, when we started hanging out. Actually, before that, I heard Facelift and my old roommate, would, you know, we would just crank all this stuff all the time. But, uh, you know, head, head forward from, uh, you know, the early 90s to uh, 2007 or 2008, uh, that's when I got the call to uh, work on a new Alice in Chains record. And my first question was like, I'm like, wow, who's singing? And, uh, you know, oh, he's got a great singer. Don't worry about it. It's going to be badass. And, uh, you know, that was Nick Raskulenix, you know, bringing me in on that on that gig. And, uh, you know, we did this giant setup, all this gear showed up and 
you know, the band, uh, Jerry was newly sober and, you know, he had like this long scraggly beard and he was pretty surly and, you know, we just stare at you like with the eyes of death. So it was kind of like, you know, figuring out where everybody was at. And, uh, you know, I just, I'm like, I'm here to work. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, I hope you are too. And, you know, we just, we just got on and, uh, you know, back then he was smoking. So, you know, while I'm recording guitars with Jerry, it's like, he's just blowing smoke into the back of my head, like all day long. There's an ashtray on the console and, you know, I'd have to shower after, you know, I got home. It was pretty brutal. <laughs> like being at a bar. <laughs> exactly. But like all day. All day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You, you know about that too. All day yeah, I do. <laughs> <laughs> so, Mostly um, all night. Yeah. So working with him, like he's newly sober and, he, you know, sounds like he was probably pretty intense, you know. Is he still that way? I mean, do you guys, I mean, I'm sure you guys have a better relationship now. Like you guys know each other pretty well by now. But like, is he still pretty, is he a pretty intense guy? Yeah, no, he's 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 pretty even keeled and, you know, he's got his head on straight and, and uh, you know, he's got a definite sense of humor. Uh, you know, yeah, first we met, yeah, after we, you know, we first met, then, you know, like halfway through the record, you know, it's like, uh, and it might've been around the time when we got his guitar sounds up and, you know, so Nick and I, you know, it's like, all right, let's start getting these guitars. And we just had all these amps out there and mic'd them up and, you know, we picked up one of his rampages and was like, oh, man, it's like, there it is. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. you know, he came in the next morning and well, not next morning, but like, you know, next day around noon or one o'clock and picked up his guitar and like started rocking and turns around and smiled and was just like all right we're in <laughs> nice <laughs> and then and then uh and then you know from kind of from then on out you know it, he opened up so you know and the whole band like mike inez is like the happiest most fun guy out there and sean is super hilarious and you know just dryly funny and you know will's super articulate and he was you know he had a lot of homework to do but uh he mostly kept to himself in the early part but uh yeah we just you know we got in there and worked and had had a blast that's awesome yeah so was that at uh, sound city the first album no this was at uh dave Grohl's studio 606 and this was okay. before right. he had picked up the console so he still had his uh is eighty fifty eight in in there? Oh, okay. and so at your studio, you have a Neve console at your studio. We have a little tiny Neve compact mixer. You know, it's like a little suitcase uh, Neve, and it you know it's totally fun. It's a little sidecar. Uh, I wish. I mean, you know, but then our workflow yeah. would be totally different because we're built for speed and like you know moving quick. You know, that would just kind of slow us down a little bit. But, you know, we've got lots of stuff happening at the studio, and I'll tell you more about that in a bit. So at that point in time, you you were already working in Dave's room, and they just brought you to Dave Grohl's studio to record that? No. So at uh, this point in time, I'm a freelance engineer. I don't work at any studios. I You know, I get hired to work for the band, and I will, you know, whether it's Henson, A&M, Ocean Way, United, or Sound City, you know, uh, going back there. Or, uh, you know, or 606. Uh, yeah, I would just travel all over the place. Sometimes they would fly me out to Nashville and I would work at Blackbird or at Sound Kitchen or uh, New York. We'd go to Avatar, which used to be, uh, what was that place called? It was bon where Bon Jovi did a bunch of records. He was his uncle's place. 
Uh, yeah, I can't remember the name of that either. I know what you're talking about, though. Station, the hit station. Yeah. I believe that's what it was. Yeah. But anyways, yeah, it was a great, that was a super fun studio, too. But uh, yeah, so Sound City was the one with the the, the famous 8028, and that's the one I learned on back in... Uh, 2001 so uh and how, yeah, did you so, go, how did you get that gig so that gig yeah so uh you know after i left phoenix you know and hanging out with joe and learning everything about grunge and you know just hanging out working at zia records <laughs> for you know nine months i you know got back to la and i was like i'm i gotta focus and just concentrate on like doing what i want to do and that's play guitar and i want to be in a band so i answered the craigslist ad and you know found his band amen and you know kind of just worked it worked my day job and you know just tried to lift his band off the ground as much as i could until 99 when we got signed and did a, a record with ross robinson for roadrunner and then we toured that around and then we did a record for virgin and then we toured that around and then uh we were working on our third record second record for virgin at sound city and you know i could see that you know, Amen was falling apart and Casey, the singer, was just drinking his own Kool-Aid, just kind of full of himself and, you know, didn't really care about the band. It was more about him and him being, you know, gaining the fame he wanted. And and I was like, you know what, I'm I'm not going to be part of that anymore. And I hammered the, uh, the studio manager about, you know, like, hey, what do I got to do to, you know, get a job here? And she was like, I'm like, do I need to bring a resume? She's like, you're hired. Just show up after these guys leave. And so, you know, I went from Virgin Records to the runner desk and, you know, maybe like the month in, I realized, man, there are kids that just got out of recording school here in Los Angeles that would kill to be sitting in this, the seat I was sitting yeah. in and learning yeah. what I was learning and seeing what I was seeing and hearing. And so, you know, I never took anything for granted. And uh, it was a super hard time. I mean, like, I think I made like $11,000 that year. And but it was like probably the most fun, the most fun time in my life. I was, you know, learning and hanging out with like cool people and great bands. And, you know, it's like all my heroes went through there. Joe Barisi, Dave Bianco and Matt Hyde and like, you know, Rick Rubin would come through and Andrew Sheps and all these people. And, you know, I'm watching and learning how these people, you know, set up bands and track drums and guitars and bass and and do overdubs and uh you know it was just that 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 was the whole thing and until you know you slowly but surely like you know start you go freelance and then that's what happened you know when i got the call for uh alice and change you know i was already freelance so i wasn't at any studio but i knew enough to you know get get the job done so you had already you did you have any like engineering experience whenever you went into that or were you just kind of getting the knowledge that you had gotten through the band and working your way through the studio while you worked there? Yeah, well, I mean, like, so I, I've been surrounded by music my entire life and being in a band and then, you know, working with Casey, you know, he had a little, you know, uh, eight track studio at his house. So, you know, we were we were recording on tape. And so, you know, then he bought a new new little desk and I uh, got a 16 track tape deck and, you know, so, it was, you know, and I'm working with that, helping that, you know, working on those demos. And then we got a little digital like VS1680. I think that was, uh, was that Tascam? Uh, maybe it was a Roland. Anyways, but it was a little digital recorder with a hard drive. It was super slow, like, you know, to load up a song. And, uh, you know, I just kind of learned on that. And then, you know, when I got to Sound City, things just kind of snapped into place. It's like, okay. 
learning signal flow and, you know, hey, you go from a microphone to a mic cable to a tie line into a patch bay. And that patch bay, you can take that line and go into a mic pre on the desk. And then out of that desk, you know, uh, you know, out of that channel into a piece of outboard gear, a compressor. And then from that compressor, you can go to tape. And then from tape, you know, you come back onto the monitor section. I was like, okay, so this is starting to make sense. And then, you know, I'm like, okay, and this is as an assistant engineer, I'm writing everything down on the console, like, you know, from song to song, it's like, you know, hey, this is what's going on. This is what changed. And, you know, I'm taking note of like, you know, hey, you know, he's boost 10K, like, you know, maybe one or two, uh, you know, DBs or, you know, hey, he's cutting, you know, 350 or boosting 60 and, you know, there's high pass filter doing this. And, and uh, you, know, you just start making those connections after a while of doing it for so long. And then you just, you get in there when there's no, you know, some, you have some downtime and start, you know, bringing a, f- a friend's band or a drummer and just, you know, start experimenting. But yeah, that's how pretty much you do it. And so you just kind of like got that experience. And you mentioned that so many of these famous producers, famous engineers were making their way through Sound City. And I mean, obviously, because it was Sound City. And you dropped the name Dave Bianco and you actually work with him now at Dave room right well this is yeah so i i met dave at at sound city and you know it was like you know we jim scott had already like jim scott and dave bianco both came up with the record plan and you know they were both like rick rubin's right hand guys and you know they were both worked with petty and all these guys and so jim scott came in that was a big to do at sound city then all of a sudden you know hey big you're on the dave bianco session and that starts you know here and here's his number if you want to get it set up and it was just like, oh, my God, I'm so nervous. You know, Dave Bianco and such, geez. And, uh, you know, he came in and he was like the coolest guy. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, was, you know, uh, I was a little nervous at first, but he was super cool, had a really fun, cool setup. And, you know, it was just all about mic placement with that guy. And, you know, I'm like documenting the desk. It was just fader levels and mic prees. It's like, yeah, I think he had one one little bit of EQ on the snare drum and that was it but it sounded sounded massive and you know it just sounded right I was like pretty impressed but so from that relationship and he came in and did another band you know this was about 2005 2006 right before I was going freelance he's like he was looking for a place because you know all the budgets were shrinking and he's like you know he had the foresight to think you know hey if i'm gonna continue working i need my own studio because there's not gonna be a budget to be able to hire him and a studio so he found this place that and, and things, Mama are, things, are sl- things are slowing down because of music streaming and things like that like no happened yet but music like napster and downloading music Right. And, you know, just just record sales being cut in half and then not being cut in half and then not being cut in half. It's like, you know, it's like people, I don't think they realize how important that, you know, like, hey, when you go to the record store and you buy that, like, you know, especially if it's a piece of vinyl, you buy that vinyl. It's like you're not, you know, you're you're creating work for, you know, not only the artist, but like uh, the guy who designed the, the record, the people who engineered yeah. it, and produced it, and mastered it. Uh, the plant that pressed it or, you know, the, you know, that created the CD, uh, you know, you have a marketing team behind that. There's a whole bunch of things that happen to get your music to you. But then all of a sudden, hey, I can get this for free. And then nobody's getting paid. And then so anyway, so back to, I'm veering off. That's a whole conversation. Yeah, Yeah, we could could have that conversation. No worries. And so uh, Dave got this place and it was a, you know, it was on this little corner at Roscoe and Lancashire. And, 
in North Hollywood. And, uh, you know, it had some serious bones. I mean, it was in really bad shape when he got it. And, you know, he's like, hey, Fig, you got to check this place out. And I pull in. It's a dirt lot. And, you know, there's a chain link fence. And I roll in and he's in there, but, you know, polishing brass, you know, TP cables, you know, uh, brasso, because that's what you have to do. They get dirty and the contact doesn't make a clean contact. So, uh, you know, he got his place wired up and, you know, he just repaired the floors and like cleaned up the rooms and put new fabric on the walls and put all this time and energy. And then he slowly, over the next couple of years, built a wall and planted all these bougainvillea and other bushes and had plants. And then he paved the driveway and, you know, put a gate in and, and created this like little oasis and then get all the way up to 2018 and uh me and him are having drinks and having a blast at my uh at my bachelor party and uh you know he goes to work on monday he's like all right cool goes to work on tuesday and uh he finishes up a gig and then he drives himself to the hospital because he's just not feeling good and you know he's a little older and he gets to the the hospital and they run some tests on him and he finds out he has some rare form of leukemia. And, you know, and then shortly right after that, while he's in the hospital, uh, he has a massive stroke, which pretty much killed him instantly. And, uh, you know, I got the call the next morning and I was just, you know, this is like three days before my wedding. And I was pretty devastated. And, you know, he's such a good friend and such a great guy. And, you know, it was always fun going to his studio and catching up or helping him with setup. But, you know, so his boys, you know, a few weeks after the wedding, they're trying to figure out what they're going to do with the studio. And, you know, his boys, you know, they're not engineers. You know, one's a musician, uh, but they don't know anything about producing music and booking a studio and having all those contact, industry contacts. So, they asked, you know, hey, you know, we'd love to keep our pops thing going. Uh, we just, you know, we can't cover this. Can, you know, you guys, any of you guys, it was like me and two other people uh, figured something out because we'd like to keep this instead of, you know, starting to empty the place out and pack it up. And uh, you know, I'm like, hey, hold on. You know, I asked him about, you know, hey, let me let me crunch some numbers and see what I can do. And, you know, it was I don't know if you ever, you know, thought of opening a recording studio in this climate. But uh, yeah, <laughs> I, yeah, and it was kind of the last thing I ever wanted to do. Somehow, some way, everything worked out, and I started a business. I, I called it Dave's Room because he never had a business. Dave's Room, he just called it that. And uh, I started a corporation, and uh, the other guy, David Sprang, who was a partner, uh, you know, he partnered up with me, so it wasn't just me by myself, and it really helped. And uh, so we took the place over in September 2018 in honor of Dave to keep his legacy moving forward. And so, uh, you know, Dave and I, like, brought our own gear to add to Dave's. And just, you know, made it like, I mean, it's unstoppable. It's like, you know, we have 29 compressors, 66 mic pre's, some amazing like EQs. It's, you know, what more can you ask for? And it's, you know, we have a control surface so we can move quick. You don't have to document the desk. You can just, you know, everything's in Pro Tools. So 2018 was uh, also, was that the same year that Rainier Fog came out? You know what? Yes. It, just, it sounds like that was a busy year for you. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. There's so a lot I, going yeah. on. Yeah. No, that, that, yeah, because that summer, uh, I think that summer before was when I was up in Seattle for three months. And uh, it was great because we, uh, you know, we set up at Studio X where they did their last record with Lane. And so it was kind of them shaking the ghosts off and like, you know, dealing with their past. And it's like, all right, we're back. And, you know, they've got a great pile of songs and, you know, we're going to get in there and make it happen. And, 
you know, we got in there and, you know, rocked that place. It was pretty awesome. I mean, what a great drum room. Yeah, that's, uh, your time in Seattle, did you, like, live there while you were recording? Did you, like, have a, a house? Yeah, yeah. So they, they put us in a condo like four blocks from the studio. So that was super convenient. We didn't have to rent a car because, you know, just driving in downtown Seattle is kind of a pain anyways. But, uh, yeah, we just, you know, it was like four blocks from the studio. And, you know, I don't know if you've ever been in Seattle during the summer. It's gorgeous. It's like, you know, Emerald City. Three like, years. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was funny because every time I toured through there, whether it was, you know, whether the punk bands I was in or Amen and, we happened to go through there when it was sunny and you know i have friends that moved there and they're like gosh you know after the fourth month of just gray you just you know god help me <laughs> and, uh you know so yeah. i'm lucky uh yeah but that summer was so gorgeous i think there was one or two overcast overcast days yeah what a fun time yeah Seattle's yeah, yeah, a fun town especially if you're downtown that's i was close yeah to downtown. i lived there yeah, i lived I, there like space deal so it, oh, I, you did. it was okay. convenient to get everywhere queen yeah Anne, queen anne's is that yeah what? Yeah. Yeah. Right over there. Uh, but yeah, we we had some fun out in Ballard, and that's that's kind of turned into a cool place. Yeah, I used to go out to Ballard every once in a while. Uh, there's a really good music bar there, and I can't remember the name of it right yeah. now. Got a, kind of a kind of a country a tractor. Is it a tractor out in Ballard? I don't know. I I didn't have a chance to see any shows when I was actually I did see one show. A friend of mine, William Anderson, dragged me out to uh, see a band called Window Pane, and then you know this other band called Ten Miles Wide opened up, and I was like, wow, that's their super cool band too. I'm like, all right. I'm like, there's it's still a lot of good music out. Seattle. Like, yeah. Seattle, they got great bands out there constantly. It's never let up, I don't think. Yeah. You know, unless you go to Mopop and you're just walking around, it's kind of hard to believe that, you know, Jimi Hendrix and Hart and Alice in Chains and Nirvana and all these bands like came out of that town. It's, it's a little, yeah. you know, it's pretty wild. Or yeah, everybody, everybody who's still touring in like the music scene, at least a lot of local people that I've kind of been around everybody just wants to tour through there anyways so it's always a good it seems like everybody wants to go through regardless of whether or not anything seems like it's coming out just because of the legacy that seattle holds with it yeah mm-hmm. yeah no it's a, a there's a cool club there the crocodile uh and i worked at the crocodile oh you did <laughs> yeah i worked there for like two years oh rad i don't know if you were there when the uh, i'm not sure if uh the new owners had taken over by that point but uh they really oh, yeah. got that place in there's like there's like laundry in the back room for the bands that come through and you know oh wow yeah like they really did it like they're taking care of the artists that come through like just keeping that in mind because that was always a fun thing if you you got to a venue and you know you pull up in your van and they're like, hey, we have laundry over here and there's showers over here and I'm like, oh yes. <laughs> yeah, Peter Buck's wife owned it when I worked there. Oh, who? Peter Buck of REM. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, his wife was okay. a lawyer out in Seattle and she owned okay. she owned the crocodile when I worked there. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I think it changed. I think it's changed hands since then. But, uh, yeah, I think yeah, that's it's, yeah, it's a super, it's a, that's a super cool, cool place. So speaking of Mopop, Museum of Pop Music in Seattle used to be, it started off as a Jimi Hendrix Experience Shrine. Mm-hmm. Um, it was called, what was it, Experience Music Project. And now it's a Museum of Pop. You did a show there 
recently was Allison Chains got inducted for something. I can't remember what, what it was called exactly. Some honorary. Yes, they got the uh, the Founders Award. Founders Award. Yes. So I watched that on YouTube, and yes, it was that was a great like everything on it was great. But like when you did that show, did the bands come in to play there? Well, so uh, we flew up, and you know during the COVID thing, you know it was scary. I mean, like I think Mike took a bus, and uh, the other guys they they flew. I think Sean's already there, but yeah, I met the guys up there and like just basically oversaw the recording side of the audio just to make sure just quality control um you know uh, they'll have me come out to like the Kimmel show and make sure the guy mixes it you know correctly because it's like a union thing and tv broadcast uh you know it's like you know hey you know will's the singer but don't just crank him and you leave jerry out in the dust like you know you got to have to have them equal they don't realize that they just say oh he's the lead singer and just crank that guy and meet everybody else and you know so i I, i'm there and you know so just making sure everything's cool and you know we, we found a few you know funky things happening in the recording so we, we we sorted that out and then you know then we taped it and then they got to film you know what they just played to a bunch and to get all those rad camera shots but uh yeah it, it, you know i've been working with jerry on his uh solo record during this covid thing and it's we've been pretty relaxed you know mellow but then those guys get up there and you know they get up there and they start playing the tune and it's like hey don't forget this is why they're i mean it, it's like it just reminded me like you know hey that's why people love these guys it's like just the talent all those guys have he's got up there and like the harmonies you know they're playing and singing guitars and you know will playing the riffs and singing and it's just like wow okay cool i'm like you know i'm like i'm pretty lucky it's like you know i'm doing something i love and i get to work with like super cool talented people and uh yeah i took that home and mixed it and you know they put it on the uh merge it with the footage with their cut their edits and uh yeah it turned out to be great but no it was just those guys for that day and then through the whole rest of the week the rest of the artists showed up because they they had to you know deal with you know the covid and all that protocol I mean, it was pretty strict, like, you know, and, and I appreciate it because, you know, I had to get on a plane, you know, I've got my mask on, I wiped my little area off, I just didn't move, didn't go to the bathroom, didn't eat anything because there's nothing to eat, it was a two-hour flight, but you get to there, you have to sign in, take the temperature, you know, you've got a bottle of hand sanitizer, you go to your little area, if it's time to eat, you go down to the cafeteria, and it's like one person per table, you wipe it off before you sit down, you eat, you take, you know, you obviously take your mask off, you eat, put your mask back on, wipe your table down when you leave, and, you know, and then that's the way it is, because, you know, you some of the people can't get sick like you know they wouldn't survive it so you know so we're you know we're just being safe and careful you know with everybody so yeah so then the rest of the band would come in throughout the week and do their do their bit unless you're corn because i think they did that someplace else and uh same with Billy Corgan. Right. Yeah. Which makes right. sense. But it's it's still pretty impressive that they managed to get all of those bands to do that. I mean, Metallica, like you said, Billy Corgan, I know he probably didn't like you said, probably didn't go to that place. And Corn, yeah. Mastodon. I mean, there was a it was a pretty stacked lineup. Yeah. And they all, they're all just, like, wow, that's killer. <laughs> yeah, they all just did like Allison Chains covers and like Tony Cornell doing Black Gives Way to Blue was amazing. Like yeah, she like she's she's really talented and like that that yeah, I don't know if you realize like, like that was I don't know if you realize but that was Chris DeGarmo playing guitar yeah I know yeah <laughs> and his wow. favorite as a side note <laughs> so I've got a great story being. so. So Nick Raskulenix is a huge, huge Queens of the Stone Age, uh, Queens of the Stone Age, uh, Queens Reich fan. 
and Chris DeGarmo is great friends with Jerry. And so he came popping by the studio when we were wrapping up on a Sunday and the band weren't there and we were just about to leave. And, you know, Chris DeGarmo was, you know, we're at Studio X and, and he was like, you know, Hey, I really like those speakers you guys are listening to. And we're using Pro Wax. And, uh, and Nick was like, dude, and he pulls out his rage for order CD and put, puts in a CD player and like makes <laughs> Chris sit down with him, crank at the desk, listening to rage for order. And all of a sudden I was like, wow, like, just like, I just got like thrown back in time into like my best friend's bedroom while we, he got the record and put the needle down and we we're just like our little, you know, teenage brains are melting. Uh, it was pretty awesome is to listen to that record because those guys were like 21 when they did that. It's like, oh yeah, that's another great Seattle band. Queen's like, like every day. That is so crazy. Not grunge. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely not grunge. Definitely not grunge. Yeah. Yeah. So that was, that was super fun. Yeah. So that was Chris Garma playing with Lily Cornell. Yeah. That was, that was like my favorite part of it. And I did not expect that to be my favorite part, but it, it's a great song. First of all. Yeah. It's and and the I, jerker. Um, so did Elton John play piano on that song on the album? He did. So that record, when we were tracking it, uh, at Henson, you know, Jerry's, you know, it's Jerry's goodbye note letter to Lane. Yeah. And, and it's the record closer and he's, in this you know he's in the uh vocal booth singing and you know it's getting emotional i mean like hey man give me a second and then you know sean's sitting at the desk you know with us while we're tracking and you know he's breaking down and it's like you know it you know it took a little while but then you know we got we got the vocal and you know all the slide stuff and all the cool uh you know, the, the vibraphone and it's like, you know, Jerry's like, no, man, it's just, it needs something else. And, you know, he had a connection with Elton and, you know, Elton was absolutely, I'll do this. So, uh, Nick Raskolnik and Jerry flew out to Vegas and went to his private studio and, and he, uh, recorded the piano up for that song. And it was, it was like, wow. Okay. So that is incredible. Just made it like, yeah, big florally like piano thing that he does. Yeah. That's, that's, that's crazy that you can just call Elton John. Yeah. How do you how <laughs> yeah. do you even manage to just have hey, an man, Elton can you John connection? Me? Like that'd be really yeah. cool. Sure. Yeah. For Elton. Exactly. But exactly. Like, yeah, we've uh we've pretty much it. I was gonna wrap it up. I was seeing if you had any more questions left, but for the most part, I think we can kind of kind of wrap this towards the end here. But once again, Paul, thanks for uh, joining us here on the right. show. Really appreciate your time. And appreciate yeah, thanks, you. Paul. Thanks for having me. And, you know, everybody, you know, be safe out there. And, you know, Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, and, you know, all of it. Mm-hmm.